0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 16, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Richard Gillick, local representative for americans united for separation of church and state will make distinctions between the first amendment and in quotes folks in religious freedom as well as offer an upcoming chapter event on may 20 if you're listening live that's this saturday during the second half of the show stephen allison uci earth system scientist will breathlessly offer his privileged insights about federal funding of science the recent EPA advisory board scientist firings, the uncertainty of the U.S. role in the latest U.N. climate agreements, as well as his and his students' involvement in the political process. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Richard Gillock, is a founding board member of the Orange County Chapter of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and is currently serving as the Chapter Secretary. He is also a member of the Americans United National Leadership Council. He is active in the Sierra Club and the fight against climate change which keeps getting steeper by the minute. Richard completed both undergrad and master's degrees in electrical engineering and computer science at MIT and is retired from the aerospace industry. He served four years in the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam War and still follows oath he took upon enlistment to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Active priestly in the ACLU, He's focusing now on the First Amendment. Richard Gillock appears on the show today in advance of the special event entitled Fighting Young Earth Creationism and Intelligent Design in 2017, presented by his local chapter. He is a longtime and very engaged resident of Costa Mesa, and he joins us in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Richard Gillock.
1: Thank you for having me, Claudia.
0: So let's start by having you tell us about the General Charter of the organization Americans United for Separation of Church and State, established right smack in the Cold War days of 1947.
1: Well, Americans United was a coalition of religious education and civic leaders in opposition to funding of private religious schools uh, back in 1947. Also the time when there was a push to put religion into government in many areas, such as the Pledge of Allegiance, putting uh, in God we trust on our money, things like that were all going on during this time. Uh, The First Amendment, if I can quote, is, "'Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. What this really boils down to is the right to have and express ideas unfettered by the government or by your fellow citizens. AU focuses on religious rights expressed in the first clause uh, of the First Amendment. That can be broken down into two things, the Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause is basically the part that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What the founders wanted was to avoid the problems of Europe where state sponsored official religion dominated politics, shutting out many of the citizens from full participation. The Free Exercise Clause is there to say that whatever you believe, whatever you want to practice, those principles are part of your daily life. It's not a license to inflict your viewpoint on others or to force them to conform to your principles of your belief. In recent years, legislation has been used to remove people's rights in favor of corporate rights uh, to inflict religious doctrine upon employees, i.e. Hobby Lobby and some other uh, rulings. These restrictions upon birth control through workplace uh, medical insurance and and such, really are a fundamental abridgment of the freedom of religion. Because you as a corporation may say, I've got a religious right to not want to fund abortion or fund birth control, but I as an individual have the right to practice those things and you shall not infringe upon those
0: rights. Okay. That's a very helpful distinction today. So why don't you post us on what are some recent attacks on the First Amendment that your local chapter's been monitoring and advocating on behalf of aggrieved parties?
1: Well, at the local chapter level, almost everything we deal with is with education. It's uh, schools that are trying to get rid of evolution, maybe slip in a little intelligent design, put uh, at-risk things like sex education, which is, really is a scientific approach to sexual behavior. And yet many schools either allow children to opt out or don't get the information they need to protect themselves. So I would say between evolution, sex education, and the climate change uh, education, these are the things that are we have to keep fighting back against vocal minorities that try to shut these things down
0: so are there any um, well some school districts some stellar efforts uh, that are providing leadership to staunch any kind of uh, uh, undermining of those principles well in our community
1: well part of the way we work is that we try not to publicize a lot of the problems because what we are trying to do is get the behavior of the schools to change. So when we get a complaint, that gets forwarded to our legal staff in uh, Washington, D.C. They generally will draft a letter telling the school board that they're in violation, either of uh, federal constitution or the state constitution or other legislation, and then try to get a resolution to the problem and try to keep it quiet. Once it becomes public, everybody digs in, and nothing gets done. So we I, try to keep interesting. that under, yeah. and so, under so wraps.
0: Is it like a, a parent or a, yes, a, normally like a sophisticated it's a student or something who's sort of on to this kind of uh, st- standard? Or how, how? So without you're not going to have to out anybody, but just how these steps are taken. That's really interesting.
1: Well, typically it's something like a teacher, maybe in biology class, talking about intelligent design or... Uh, some other reference to uh, God or, or other uh, non-scientific aspects in a science class. Or maybe it's uh, someone pushing, uh, you know, comes to class, has a Bible on his uh, the teacher's desk, and maybe a poster or two up that indicate that you really ought to believe in Jesus if you want to be in my class.
0: In the science class or in any kind of in class? In
1: any kind of class. And so, student feels uncomfortable, they talk to their parents, their parents, if they're savvy enough, they contact us, and we start the ball rolling from there.
0: Okay, and then you said the letter goes up to the national level, and then and the, the, the national level presents a letter, a, a formal letter, to the governing entity responsible for the hiring and uh, review of that teacher.
1: Exactly. And that's uh, that's the typical way things happen. Occasionally uh, things go to court, but even in those cases, keeping everything confidential up till the uh, uh, court date is uh, very important for getting these things resolved because what we're really looking for isn't to out people, it's to get a resolution. That's and and that amenable works. Do
0: people understand that you're using utter discretion and they they appreciate that it's being done or they are saying wait a minute you have no no say in this kind of thing what we want done in this classroom
1: usually if we get that response it's it's very short term because once the school district's lawyers start to look at the letter look at the situation they usually say "Uh, we can't win this back off we need a resolution here
0: okay so i do know of some instances where at university high school there have been some science teachers with some pretty interesting information that seems to be off the syllabus. So I won't ask about that, I, but I, I'm going to acknowledge that, that I'm aware of that. But So this discretion is a way of affably resolving this. It's, the resolution is the goal. It's not the politicization of any of this. So that's And they the most parties understand that, including the, the legal counsel to every school board.
1: Especially the legal counsel.
0: Because, I mean, this must be a tried-and-true template that the... National Organization, of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, has been using over the years.
1: Yes, and that's why we refer all of these uh, cases to them. We don't try to resolve anything on the local level except to gather information and to forward it on to our legal counsel.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Richard Gillock. He's the founding board member of the local chapter of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. And we're talking about how the organization works within, discreetly, to address any kinds of transgressions that would appear to be unconstitutional in terms of religious content in Perhaps in a science curriculum, or it could have been, it could be in a health class. It could be, what are other examples where it would show up?
1: It can actually show up almost anywhere. Uh, typically, it's the behavior of the teacher. And I mean, the most egregious things are when you're actually teaching non science in a science class, but when you're actually creating any kind of environment that demands some kind of religious conformity of the students. That's a clear violation. That's not a case of religious freedom of the teacher. It's a case of the religious freedom of the students.
0: Is it kind of an inverse argument then? It's sort of, uh, and, and that's why the expression religious freedom is so fraught. It's Is it whose religious freedom we're talking about?
1: Exactly. And, the, and as I said before, religious freedom is what you believe. Your personal faith, your personal Uh, involvement. But your personal belief is not necessarily shared by everyone else. And everyone else has exactly the same right to their personal beliefs. So when you infringe upon someone else's belief, you're violating the Constitution.
0: Wow. So we have a great deal of attention directed toward this with the executive order considered uh, under the auspices I guess of religious freedom from our president the Johnson amendment was reversed how let's let's talk a little bit about the Johnson amendment and how it would affect the separation of church and state where we are today well
1: first of all the executive order does not reverse the Johnson amendment the Johnson amendment uh, is part of a bill that was passed back in 1954 it's still on the books. It's still in the IRS regulations. The, what the president did was to say that he wanted them to use more discretion in the enforcement of the Johnson Amendment. And truly, the Johnson Amendment has hardly been enforced at all since about 2000. So this is not really gonna make a big difference in current behaviors. And interestingly enough, when they did Pew Research uh, poll on this, they found that a majority of people, about 66%, don't want their clergy telling them how to vote. And where you would think you would find the strongest desire to do that amongst evangelical Christians, only 37% of... 30 relig- which percent? 37% 37. Percent okay. of evangelical pastors and leaders actually believe that they should be politicking from the pulpit, their mission is really to convey the word of God, not to convey partisan politics. And because, and part of it too is that within the congregation, you may agree on a lot of things of faith, but you may disagree on the politics. Right. And there's more than one path to get to uh, your your goal. So having partisan politics in, introduced into your the house of worship actually defeats your purpose of bringing and uniting your congregation Around to do their to do the spiritual goals you're
0: Well, the the espousing. thing about the thirty seven percent of the pastors is that they are not all sized equally, so we can't know how representative that is of you know how what's how many what's the flock attending to the those clergy that you're talking about. So it, it'd be cool to sort of break down as how that translates into you know if we have mega churches that are leaning more toward that political aspect, then we could see a, a larger representation of people that are willing to allow for a politicization in their congregation. So it's, it's a it's a little tricky uh, breakdown there.
1: That's so. true. But it's, uh, it's a matter of what is your real purpose?
0: So let's talk about the role that Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos has uh, in setting the guidelines for science curriculum in public schools. We know she has a her record is exclusively working, or she's a consumer of private education, and we know she's a pretty devoted Roman Catholic, I believe it is. and But she's now in a position to make rules, promulgate rules for within that federal agency, Department of Education. So what, what does she offer at this point?
1: Well, I, if I had to characterize Betsy DeVos as anything, she is an extreme advocate for charter schools and for private schools. The real danger isn't so much uh, that she's going to change science curriculum, it's that we're going to wind up like we've seen in Michigan with... Where she's from. Where she's from, where the charter schools have absolutely no accountability. They're primarily failing. Only 10% of the charter schools are in the top tier of school performers, which means 90% 90% of the top-tier performers are public schools. So that's a distinction that shows that without accountability, these charter schools simply don't work, and private schools are the same problem. Now, we have a problem with you know voucher systems or any other funding of private schools because they're primarily religious, and that means that uh, your tax dollars are going to pay for the upkeep of a religious institution, and but as far as what she's going to do on science, that's really going to be buried into what are these charter schools doing? What are the uh, private schools doing? And why are they uh, not doing it with a uh, uh, with any accountability?
0: Richard, can you help us with what your counterparts in Michigan have experienced when they, if there's a different accountability with charter schools? In, in that state what would you imagine would be the Americans United memo to um, d- can they not touch what the charter schools are doing if there is some cross some transgression with this separation of church and state
1: well certainly if there's any uh, direct evidence of proselytization uh, or whatever in a charter school
0: but the then- accountability could be a real issue here in terms of constitutionality being sustained.
1: Well, we can certainly still, uh, it, the problem isn't that there isn't accountability. The accountability comes through the courts if we uh, find a violation, and that avenue is still open. What's wrong is that we don't have systematic accountability that's, what I'm thinking that's done at the state level right. to make sure that these schools are performing up to speed. Uh, there, As the, was reported in the De- Detroit Free Press, that under Betsy DeVos and her pro-charter school movement, it's almost impossible to get rid of a charter school, no matter how badly they're performing. And some of them are the lowest performing schools in the entire state. Uh, but again, they can't touch the administration and they can't touch the curriculum. They can't touch their funding because the there's no mechanism for accountability under the Michigan system.
0: Well, our work's cut out for us in being vigilant about what kinds of directions she's uh, taking with the power of her office. Well, we really need to make sure we give you an ample opportunity to talk about this Saturday, for those of you listening live, on May 20th, the meeting that you will convene. its You meet every third week of the month, but this, this particular month you will have a special event, and I want to have you tell us what Dr. Eugenie Scott will be presenting.
1: Well, uh, Dr. Eugenie Scott uh, was formerly the uh, director of the National Center for Science Education. She served there from 1986 to 2014. Uh, she's currently on the National Board of Trustees of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Uh, she's a former University of Colorado and Cal State Hayward professor. Her degree is in biological anthropology from the University of Missouri, and she's an American physical anthropologist, which means she basically studies bones to find out how did people live in, uh, back in the uh, ancient times. Uh, the title of her talk is Fighting Young, Creation, young Earth Creationism and Intelligent Design in 2017. Uh, she's going to talk about the rise of young earth creationism, uh, the importance of teaching evolution in public schools, She'll also uh, touch on a couple of court cases. 1987, Edwards v. Aguilar uh, banned the teaching of creation science in public schools. In 2005, a uh, really famous case, Kitzmiller v. Dover Area School District, uh, she was one of the researchers who uh, got the uh, uh, proof that intelligent design is just a rebranding of creation science. In fact, it was interesting that they found typos in uh, some of the literature where they actually had tried to cut and paste uh, creationism out, and uh, actually had just put intelligent design in between C R E and A T I O. <laughs> so it was wow. uh, it was a it was a landmark case that uh, really hasn't been challenged since. Uh,
0: so. We'll we'll wrap here, uh, wind up the topic. Uh, you can tell us where and when and how and that people can continue to meet with you also at the same location as I mentioned earlier, the third Saturday of each month. So where yes. do people meet and when do they expect to line up to get in?
1: Okay, so this is going to be on Saturday, May 20th, at the Irvine Ranch uh, Water District Community Room. That's at 15500 San Canyon Avenue in Irvine, California. And you don't have to remember any of this. All you have to remember is this website, au-oc.org. You'll find out about all of our upcoming events and uh, get be able to uh, join us, and we hope to see you there.
0: It has the all-important map of exactly which structure in that complex to go to, because that's not always the most obvious thing when other organizations in Orange County meet at that fabulous meeting place. So au-oc.org gives you that and the numbers to call for more information and to follow upcoming programs. Well, that's all the time we have. Richard Gillock, I'm hoping for a rousing turnout at your Saturday event. I thank you so much for coming to the station to be with us today. Thanks for coming down.
1: Thank you, Claudia.
0: We'll be right back after a short break and bring on Stephen Allison to uh, bring us uh, so many topics on earth system science we'll be right back Thanks for staying with us, everybody. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is UCI Earth System Scientist, Stephen Allison. He specializes in microbial ecology and biogeochemistry. His research interests include carbon and nutrient cycling, Microbial feedbacks to global change and microbial extracellular enzymes. Steve Allison earned his bachelor's of science in biology at Penn State and his PhD in biosciences at Stanford University. With extensive peer-reviewed publications he has he's garnered a host of academic distinctions the most recent of which is the Early Career Fellow Ecology Society of America for these last 4 years he maintains A robust Allison Lab, the alumni of whom are enterprising researchers at institutions throughout the country. His current staff, I anticipate, folks, this is the promise, will offer future contributors to Ask a Leader as we have barely enough time to do justice to today's array of topics pertaining to National Leadership International Agreements, filling additional federal posts, and ongoing research engagement with congressional elected officials. You may have seen his recent op-ed piece in the LA Times Daily Pilot, April 19, in advance of the March for Science. Stephen Allison joins us in studio today. Welcome to Ask
2: a Leader, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me, Claudia.
0: Well, let's dive in. First, I'd like to have you tell us briefly about your research as a way of also demonstrating the importance of work that scientists like you do toward addressing global scaled climate problems
2: that's right so in in my lab we're very interested in how climate change is affecting different aspects of the earth system and in particular i'm interested in how climate change is affecting soils and the amount of carbon that's stored in soil so soils are actually like a big sponge for carbon dioxide, which is an important greenhouse gas. And we're interested in whether that carbon is going to be stable over the future as the climate changes. And we're also interested in how different climate factors like drought, like the drought that California experienced over the past five years, might affect those soil resources, and also the microorganisms and other living things that occur in those soils.
0: Well, I, I tend to go into the... Uh, the Sorted line of questioning, we can just do this for a moment just to get every, keep everybody's attention is art, does it keep you up at night? What you see in terms of maybe exponential kinds of pickups of changes in levels in the dirt?
2: Right. So the soil is actually our ally here in that it, it's storing carbon that would otherwise go into the atmosphere through greenhouse gas emissions. But from, what
0: kind of carbon it's storing is probably a really important one. No? It's
2: storing organic forms of carbon. So carbon that is stable for maybe hundreds to thousands of years and is preventing that carbon from uh, contributing to the climate problem in the atmosphere.
0: OK, so trends.
2: So trends. Uh, we're actually not certain what carbon in the soil is going to do in the future. Uh, we do know that the atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide are increasing very rapidly, uh, exponentially, basically with uh, human population growth and human economic activity, and that will proceed for the foreseeable future unless there are policies adopted by society to reduce greenhouse gas emissions.
0: So, on to funding, the federal budget for fi- for 2017. You said it's, that's already that's established, but let's let's give get a privileged insight from you about what 2018 fiscal year looks like for federal science funding.
2: So scientists uh, like me have been very concerned about what's happening uh, with the federal budget proposal. And uh, one of the trips to Washington, D.C. that I made uh, recently was to kind of hammer home the point that scientists are very concerned about reductions in funding for our key scientific agencies and programs. So Uh, We're looking at potentially in the the Trump administration proposed budget cuts of 18 to more than 30 percent to some agencies. And this would be uh, devastating to our scientific research efforts in in climate science, but also in many aspects of of science.
0: So last week, Scott Pruitt dismissed or fired, if you like, half of the EPA scientific advisory board. It was done Quietly, but I don't think I don't understand how you can do anything quietly at the federal level, especially when it's dealing with science and climate change. That's pretty instructive. Tell us about the purpose of these two advisory boards and why it's important. Who's appointed to them?
2: Right. So there were there were two boards that were involved. Uh, one was the uh, Scientific Counselors Board, and one was the Scientific Advisory Board. And the the Counselors Board is is a little bit smaller, and its focus uh, appears to be on maintaining and directing the research efforts at EPA, and the advisory board is just a a broader group of scientists who are providing technical advice to the EPA on on various issues. And so in general, in science, in making public policy related to science, we want to have the best uh, current knowledge influencing those decisions. We want to be making good decisions as a society, and I think that scientists can make uh, a lot of positive input to those decisions. And furthermore, we want to have the the best trained scientists who have the most relevant research and experience in these advisory boards, because the decisions that these agencies are making are going to affect all of us. They're going to affect uh, the environment, they're going to affect our future economic growth and activity, and we want to make sure that the people in these advisory roles are highly qualified for the jobs that they're doing.
0: Well, speaking of qualified, then we get, and this, I don't know exactly which day, it's staggering the developments to, to keep track of here, but this, the current administration is going to be nominating Sam Clovis. He's He knows how to do radio. He knows how to manage uh, some uh, organiz- some institutions, but he's being nominated to, and this is a It requires confirmation of the U.S. Senate that Sam Clovis is being nominated as an undersecretary of the United States Department of Agriculture. So there's one more scientific role mismatched with an appointment.
2: Yeah, so this is also a very important role. And and like I said, in many of these federal agencies, we want to have the best, most experienced individuals uh, contributing to the decision-making process. And the Undersecretary of Agriculture is going to be involved in various aspects of food security and making scientific decisions about funding priorities at USDA and uh, research priorities. What should we study um, in a changing world to understand how to, say, grow crops in a changing climate or how to improve nutrition for vast numbers of people here and around the world? So we want to make sure that we have people, again, with experience in these issues and I'm not sure that uh, Clovis has that type of background, but it's very important to have those types of people in charge of these agencies.
0: So do you envision the scientific community is going to bring to bear on this process, this nominating process?
2: Well, the scientists and colleagues that I have will, will almost certainly weigh in and uh, communicate their, their views to the federal officials and their, their capacity as private citizens in this decision-making process. Um there may also be action by the scientific societies that may contribute to uh, this nomination process i would I would hope I would expect that
0: And as your would the audience be the administration or would it, would it be the 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 legislative body or the American public to up science literacy I mean I, where where do you think those would be directed because there's going to be some deaf ears in that group that I just cited mention.
2: Right. Well, as you mentioned, the the Senate has confirmation power in the process. So the Senate is the body that can actually influence the decision the most. However, I think there's a broader goal here that we as scientists need to reach out to the public more and get the public to understand and and appreciate the work that that we're doing. And I don't know that we've done a great job of that in the past. Um, However, I think that the actions of the Trump administration have uh, instilled a new sense of urgency among scientists and the scientific community. And bringing that knowledge and bringing our experience uh, and bringing that value to the public so that they understand what it is that we're doing with their tax dollars and why it's so important for them.
0: And I, I want to mention, because I, I've had Michael Mann on mm-hmm. my show, and he's talked about the, all this kind of subpoenaing of scientists and all these ways that sort of try to divert scientists from the everyday work, which is, I mean, in, in a day, you don't have enough hours to do your science. When, when you have to play defense, it undermines your effectiveness in tackling what are unwieldy huge research agendas. So it's this Sam Clovis appointment, folks, it's it's a it's a there's an opportunity cost in science. Tis time to mobilize about that nomination.
2: Right. So personally I think that we can accomplish multiple objectives here by reaching out to the public, reaching out to constituents in a in a stronger way. And that that uh, process, maybe not instantly, but over the long term is going to get the public on the side of, of uh, sound science to support policy. So I think that we can uh, potentially engage in that, in that community building without uh, it being a, a distraction and that uh, that's an important part of what we should be doing. And it's just now that the, the new administration is, is really pointing to that urgency and that need to engage the community even more than we have been in the past.
0: So let's talk then about the, I, I know we're, we're barely, we're barely gracing the, the, the top here, but the Paris Climate Agreement, now we've got the, the UN meetings going on throughout the month of May in Bonn, Germany. And we have, I mean, if there isn't enough burlesque, there's always more burlesque mm-hmm. going on. My bias here is that Ivanka Trump is conferring with EPA Director Scott Pruitt towards setting up a review process about the U.S. disposition toward the U.N. Paris Agreement. That pairs some pretty interesting credentials, would you think?
2: I I think so. Um, It's good to have uh, multiple voices at the table, and I think that there's some evidence from Ivanka Trump's uh, past statements that that she is concerned about climate change and climate issues and how it's going to be impacting Americans and others around the world. And so I hope that if she has some insight on this issue, that uh, she can weigh in on that discussion.
0: Okay. Well, we're not sure who gets. We know that the last person to speak to the president is the one who has sway. So uh, we're it all. It all's in that kind of formulas. Who has that opportunity? Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Stephen Allison, professor of biology and earth system science at UC Irvine. We're now we've moved headlong into the Paris Climate Agreement, the UN conference convening in Bonn, Germany right now, so why don't you talk to us about the concerns you have for, there's no signal in what the U.S. disposition is towards this protocol, and there is, going to this meeting, a congregation that's been whittled from 44 members down to about 18, so with, is uh, it Trig Tally, I think is his name, that the, the the head of the, or, the congregation. So what kinds of concerns do you have with this looming uncertainty about the, the most powerful country in the world's disposition in this agreement?
2: Well, I think that the most important um, action here is that the U.S. take a leadership role in addressing the climate problem. And there are many ways that the U.S. can do that, and its Paris Agreement commitment is one of those ways. And so, you know, of course, I would support that uh, continued commitment to that agreement. Uh, however, it's, it's unclear uh, that the Trump administration uh, wants to stick with that commitment. And in fact, if we look at the Trump administration's uh, actions in terms of regulatory policy, uh, there's evidence that it's, it's not committed to uh, solving the climate problem and that whether or not the administration chooses to remain in the Paris Agreement uh, it may it may not be meeting those commitments uh, regardless so one of the things that i think we need to do is is consider all of the ways that the the us at multiple levels can be uh moving towards climate solutions
0: well i mean we're we're seeing some things falling apart we see the the indian agreement uh, the indian the country of india pulling off and uh, cranking up more of the coal and that. so i mean this this whole agreement is is uh, a a problem.
2: (laughs) Right. So the the agreement uh, was really initially based not on uh, committed legal action, but based on peer pressure amongst the signatories to the agreement.
0: The necessary glue here.
2: Right. And so with every country that signs on, giving a good faith commitment to voluntarily meet its commitments under that, that agreement, then everything works. But as different parties uh, start to bow out or undermine those commitments, it, it could have a negative impact on the entire agreement globally, which would be devastating because, um, as as you may know, the United States is no longer the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, uh, China is, and India is not far behind. So these countries are a really important part of the solution to global climate problems. and We must be engaging with them at the table, uh, which I think is one of the key arguments for remaining in the Paris Agreement, regardless of what the Trump administration's greenhouse gas reductions goals are for the U.S.
0: So we're safeguarded a little bit. I wanted to go back to some of the legislative process in the U.S., but it also it gives us, uh, there's a little buffer here uh, of what the leadership is telegraphing uh, internationally, is that the methane emissions rule was not rolled back by a bare majority, 51-49 vote in the U.S. Senate. A few Republicans joined all of the Democrats. So is do you think that demonstration of leadership is a, maybe, it's not sufficient, but a necessary kind of uh, data point for the international community to witness?
2: I think that's encouraging. Um, it is nice that uh, senators like John McCain signed on to uh, prevent the rollback of the methane rule. Um, I would hope that we could count on those uh, moderates in the Senate and and Congress to uh, be a check on the Trump administration's uh, uh, stepping back from these commitments and stepping back from uh, important uh, controls on greenhouse gas emissions. I don't know that we can count on Congress to do that, and there are many political uh, pressures that Congress is dealing with and is facing, and they may not uh, always do what we would hope they would do in terms of uh, meeting greenhouse gas emissions regulations. So I think that we have to look to other parts of the country and other uh, solutions as well. So we can look to the state level in California. Uh, We can look to localities, so cities, uh, counties. We can look to corporations potentially. We can look to market forces like the substitution of clean energy for uh, fossil-based energy. And the problem is we don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, the, the Paris Agreement gives us more certainty uh, that those uh, advances will be made. But, and momentum. And there's momentum. We can always hope that those advances will happen anyway just due to the, the willpower of you know, individuals, citizens, constituents, corporations, uh, or various levels of government. But it's really a lot easier to accomplish those goals if we have a, a national policy in some cases.
0: Well, you have been very involved uh, you were no doubt involved with some of the march for science organizing i'd like to have you give as much time as you can uh, i'm always wanting people to give us b- the benefit of their experience with their one-on-ones in the congressional offices you've been going to many of them i'm going to zero in on the the congressional districts 45 46 and 48 for, for the others i, I won't go to because these are the ones that sort of overlap or, or, or but where KUCI broadcasts from. So you've brought your students along with you. So why don't we uh, break it down? First of all, Congressional District 45, you've met with staff. You've not met with Congresswoman Mimi Walters. What did you do with that meeting? What happened? To the extent you can tell us.
2: Sure. Well, it's a, it's a public meeting. It's part of the, the public record. And so uh, back in March, I went with, uh, actually, this was a delegation of other faculty and, and staff
0: from all over the campus, from just from your lab and- th- Actually, no, it was,
2: it was just me from UC Irvine, and then I had a colleague from Chapman University. Okay. Um, a colleague from um, George Washington University in D.C., and a colleague from the Irvine Ranch Conservancy, which is a, a partner organization which manages a lot of the open space land in Orange County. So we went to Congress to explain the benefits of the, the scientific research that- You're that meeting y- in D.C.? Yeah, this is the meetings in D.C. Okay. Uh, with Mimi Walter's staff, with Dana Roebacher's staff, and the other uh, members of Congress we Individually met Individually
0: or you went to different offices?
2: Uh, the group of us uh, went to different offices. Okay, so all. we spoke as as a team Okay, uh, because we each brought to the table a different aspect of the benefits of that federally funded research. And so the point is that we found that those staff members were listening to what we had to say about the benefits of the research, Um we didn't get a whole lot of feedback from them uh, either way. but Were was, they writing things down? They were definitely were writing things. down they nodding things, heads? They were writing things down. Um, in fact, uh, Mimi Walters, uh, staffer, actually mentioned that she had, had the chance uh, a few months prior to visit some of the Irvine Ranch lands uh, in Orange County. So that was encouraging that, that she at least had the opportunity to see some of the, the benefits of, of good land management in our, in our region, the benefits for the environment, and, and for the local economy. So we were encouraged when the 2017 federal budget decisions were made that basically the cuts that the Trump administration had asked for were not uh, included in that budget, and most of the agencies that that we were advocating for were flat-funded for 2017. And, of course, flat funding is not as good as increases in funding. There were small increases, and we need much bigger increases to really tackle some of these big problems. But we're a little more hopeful now that for 2018... Perhaps some of that funding will be remaining in place.
0: Okay, let's let's before we go into the next congressional district, forty six or forty eight, depending which order you care. As were they asking good questions? Were were they in just what what was your impression of the staff's level of with itness?
2: Well, it depends on the on the office and, and let's the talk staffer. About 45. She was she was listening. That was that was the main uh, they component. They were You said she wasn't there. Right. The staffer was listening. She
0: Only one staffer. Right. Okay. So she wasn't asking any questions.
2: She didn't ask many questions that were very detailed, no.
0: Okay. And what was... I'm not asking you to tell me who was, but what's her role in the congressional office?
2: Uh, She was a legislative uh, analyst.
0: An analyst. Okay. Okay. So she's used to dealing with details, nitty-gritty, wonky details. So...
2: Of of certain legislation, yeah, one would think, yes.
0: Okay, okay. Well, let's go into Dana Rohrabacher's congressional district office Mm -hmm. in D.C. That's the 48th folks. What was that like, and who was there?
2: Uh, So for that meeting, we met with uh, two staffers, um, including uh, one of his uh, legislative directors, and that was a a fairly productive conversation. um, In what ways? Well, the staffer actually suggested some legislative ideas for dealing with drought and wildfire risks to... California. Uh, so uh, Congressman Roebacher is a, a self-proclaimed climate skeptic, but he is interested in uh, addressing problems like drought, wildfire that affects uh, our local region. So there definitely seem to be some interest in research that addressed those types of, of problems.
0: Did it use like risk management terms? Like we want to make sure that the federal exposure to to. Pre- you know, repaying uh, on claims or something like that. Was it that kind of a thing, or was it a, a more broad no, environmental I think it, impact?
2: It was a more broad environmental impact for uh, forest resources. So, a wildfire that would threaten forests or national forests,
0: which are outside of the 48th district. So they're they're thinking more statewide. Good right. For
2: them. Although, I mean, there are uh, na- there was a national forest, the Cleveland National Forest, uh, right in Orange County and Riverside County right. here. And if Adjacent. that forest, yeah, if that forest catches on fire. Um, the smoke will blow over over oh, here, point. and uh, will definitely be noticed by the, the members of the 48th <laughs> district.
0: did, did they oh, so they had some proposals. Did you feel like you perhaps broke some ground, brought more more momentum to reconsideration of Dana Rohrbacher's public position on climate change?
2: I don't think that we had any effect on his public position on climate change.
0: Okay, all right. the next one. The 46th, That's I believe that's that's Lou Correa's district. Sure. Mm-hmm. Did, and this is a Democratic congressman, mm-hmm. re- recently elected to this post. So how did that one go?
2: Well, I feel like uh, we have some junior staffers there, two of them, and uh, they were still learning a bit about these issues. And one of the challenges here is that most of the open space that we were discussing in these meetings is uh, in the forty-fifth district and some in the in the forty-eighth. So one of the challenges with the 46th district is uh, conveying to constituents the value of, of this land and the value of this research because it's a more urbanized district. And so I think there's some education that we can do in that regard.
0: Okay. So why don't you make this... You're, I'm going to make you the poster prof for what you're doing that your colleagues could do To engage students I mean you have science lab students so how can you make an uh, example to colleagues either in science or I'm thinking in any other field because there is every every application I don't care if it's even the School of Performing Arts there could be art performance to to help add momentum and climate change reverse and that kind of thing so what have you seen has gotten your students on board and I will have them on. I'm gonna have like two or three of them fill up this studio with me or they can call Great, in on the yeah. phone. So what be be the example, lead by example, and let's help out your colleagues to engage everybody's students in this effort.
2: So I think that the key for me is graduate training and I've been focusing on graduate training. So teaching the next generation of experts in this field and how to solve the problem, how to deal with the multiple aspects in multiple fields that, that weigh in on the climate problem. And I've been really thrilled by how students from different disciplines, including the humanities, okay. um, including engineering and biology and other life sciences, how they can come together and discuss the problem from very different perspectives and perspectives that I never even imagined before. So, for example, the you know literary history of oil use in the United States and in, in Southern California in particular. particular. So... You know, setting the stage for why do we have this car culture in Southern California? Why do we, you know, value or view petroleum the way that we do? And so, this kind of literary perspective was was really illuminating for me. And I think that my colleagues would would benefit a lot from getting outside of their academic silos. So you know, we we sit in the ivory tower and we uh, think about you know our particular problem. But the issue with climate change is that it's a problem that affects all different disciplines and the only way we're gonna solve it is if we put together all these different perspectives. And so I'd encourage my my colleagues to get outside of their their boxes a bit and think more broadly or as broadly as they can, especially when they're when they're training students.
0: So School of the Humanities, the school of the Claire Trevor School of the Arts, please Purchase your ticket, your airline ticket to D.C. and bring your delegation. This is a call to action. Sometimes we really don't get to do this, but I do it anyway. And uh, go ahead and you can bring that perspective um, or even the cognitive scientist, I want them to go in there and talk about uh, talk with our congressional members about why people are wired to to be skeptical about this or why, why the, there is a devotion to a certain quaint belief or something. Well,
2: like that's that. what I actually just sat on a panel Uh, with a faculty from anthropology and uh, social sciences and education. And it was really illuminating then. that was just a week ago hearing about their perspective on why people hold the beliefs that they do and how they view scientific research and uh, the scientific applications of the climate problem. And I, you know, as a scientist don't necessarily look at it that way, look at it this way. And and it's really sense. It does make sense. And it really shows that we probably should be changing our approaches for reaching out to the public and our approaches for how we convey our science uh, with the public and with policymakers. And so I want to make some of those changes. I want to also train my students to be aware of these differences in perception so that we can find common ground on this problem.
0: So maybe one of the, one ways to crack this nut is to have different schools from time to time bring a, a multidiscipline delegation of students with them to make the case. So, right. And
2: that's actually what my uh, most recent group of students who w- went out they to D.C. Were. Okay, great. Yeah. So uh, actually the constituent in Dana Rohrabacher's district was uh, an English Ph.D. student. So he uh, brought to bear the uh, discussion of climate resilience with Rohrabacher's office. And I think that was a really positive way to bring in that new perspective.
0: Also to advance how all the disciplines are important and that the public university system ought to be funding all of those. So I'm sure so many messages flew out.
2: Yeah, I think, it was, I think it was a great experience for them, and I, I really felt like it was a, a positive uh, training experience and learning experience for me as well.
0: Well, I am so glad that you could lay all of this out. This is such abundant opportunity with, a, with an ironclad logic. It's great. Thank you, Steve Allison, for coming on the show today to, to bring this to our attention
2: thank you so much for having me
0: so folks we just had on Stephen Allison he's an earth system science professor here at UCI and that's my wrap next week I will have California Assembly Speaker Pro Tem Kevin Mullen about the legislation in the pipeline to move up California's presidential primary thank you everybody for listening we'll talk to you next week